0: this was about as bizarre and as
1: easy as it gets.
0: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work.
1: I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of you
1: know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by bizbuysell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google business for sale, what comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be BizBuySell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it book by going to bizbysell.com slash built. That's bizbysell.com forward slash built. So how many hours a day are you working? My next guest Susan Harib built up her multi-million dollar consulting firm to the point where she was only working an hour a day. How did she do it? Well. She got a 2IC, a second-in-command, to come in and really run the business day-to-day. And What I found fascinating about listening to this interview was how she incentivized that second-in-command, how she protected her business so as not to be too reliant on that individual, but also positioned him as the key person to run the business day-to-day and, in fact, the person that would be important for the acquirer to retain. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Susan Harib. Sue Harib, welcome to Built to Cell Radio.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, no, no problem. So you're based in Atlanta. I understand you guys have just come through Irma, so thank uh, goodness you're, you're okay. And, and uh, I know that was a shocking storm for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it was not fun. We wow. lost electricity and lots of trees. So uh, thank God for ways and technology to take you around the boat because I didn't know how to get out of my house.
1: Yeah. So tell me about this company, Signum. Uh, you started back in 1994. What kind of business was it? Uh,
0: I did consulting and mainly in oil, gas, and utilities. So not a very big field for women.
1: No, I'd imagine. So what kind of consulting did you do in those spaces, in those
0: categories? Uh we did We did what's called preventative maintenance, plant maintenance. So we were managing their supply chain, their work management to maintain the assets out in the field. So... Uh, very operation-driven.
1: Got it. So I've got a, an oil rig in the oil sands, and it's worth $3 bucks or $30 bucks. I have no idea how much an oil rig costs. I'm sure it's a lot of money. But it's got a lifespan, and you're helping them manage it. What needs to be maintained at what point in the life cycle? Um, you know, is that the kind of stuff you're doing?
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. And making sure that when they have to do their overhauls, that they are able to have the people on board to do the work, Scheduling wise, and then all of the supply chain, you know, you might need parts and things of that sort, making sure that they're available.
1: And so, what's the revenue model? I mean, you charging by the hour for by the project? I mean, how how did you make money?
0: Uh, Well, we did by the project. So, we would actually do implementation of systems for them and do best practices. So, we would tell them how to put in a system to do the tracking of all of that, and then we would uh, train them and then go in and do assessments afterward to make sure that they were still doing best practices.
1: And so it was a professional services model. Yes, sir. Got it. Okay. That's the first time I've been called sir in about two years, so.
0: Oh, we're from the (laughs) south.
1: (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. Well, Uh, (laughs) ma'am. Tell me a little bit about the, the kind of growth of the firm. So you started in 94. I mean, you know, how big did you get the company by the time you sold it in terms of revenue or you know, number of players? Yeah.
0: So, so, you know, I think like every entrepreneur, you kind of start out and start out in your house and figure out, okay, then you get a little bit too big for your house and you move to an office and then you realize when you move to an office, now you have overhead and all this other stuff. So you know, I I, I started out um, very quickly getting to a million dollars within the first year, and then I probably stayed about between two and three million for a very long time, and then I just decided, okay, I'm going to go into growth mode, and I went into growth mode and took it from like three million to ten million within a year, and um, maintained that for a couple of years. And I was actually going to sell my company back then, and things didn't go through, and whatever. And and then what happened was, then I was like, you know, this growth is not all it's cracked up to be, uh, because um, the banking got really bad. They weren't allowing us to have money to grow and all that. So I basically said, you know what, I'm going to scale this back and get to a point where, you know, I don't have to. Be, I called it like a crack person. Every payroll, you're like, oh my god, where am I going to get this money? I hope these people pay me. Um, so when you go back from 10 million down, um, y- you know you don't have to worry about all of that. And then basically, I got rid of everything. I went to the cloud, got rid of support, and just concentrated on just doing the big projects. So um, by the time that we sold, we were around uh, 4 million.
1: Fascinating. Okay. So there's a ton of questions I've got there. So two to 3 million, that's an interesting spot. We call it ceiling complexity. A lot of business owners will, will will grow quite quickly and then they kind of stall. Interesting that that happened to you. As you look back now, can you diagnose why you seem to stall at two to 3 million for, for such a long time?
0: I think what, what happens is for you to go, you know, we, in consulting, the big number is that $5 million, And then once you pass the $5 million, it's $10 million. And, and when what you say it does the big
1: is, number, what, what, what do you mean by the big number? Why the, is the,
0: re- the revenue, the revenue number. And, and the reason for it is because when you get to the 5000000 million, you're now talking that you don't have 10 employees anymore. You have 30. And then when I was at $10 million, I had 75. And with 75 people... You now have to have managers there. You have to have a back office. you have to have HR and all this other stuff that just adds to the complexity and adds to the whole uh, organization, if you will. and And it's a and if you're not prepared for it, it's it's really a difficult thing to kind of um, you know, go go about doing. The other thing, I think the the big thing for me was I had a business coach. And my business coach probably was instrumental for me getting to that five million and five to 10 million. Um, Without him, I don't think I could have gotten there because what happens at the five million mark also is everything has to be about a procedure. And once you have the procedure for you to grow, that's what made us grow from five to 10 million and not lose a beat because of the fact that, you know, we had everything was about a procedure. You hire someone, it's a procedure. You go in and um onboard somebody onto a project, that's a procedure. Uh, you put entries into QuickBooks, that's a procedure. So you know everything was about a procedure and and my my business coach happens to be an engineer. so he's very, very adamant about everything being a procedure. so that that really helped me to kind of um, set the tone and set the growth. And I think, quite frankly, that's what was the attractive thing about the company that was going to buy me is that, you know, they're at a, a point, they're at the 100 million mark, but they really love the fact that we were smaller, but we had procedures like you can't believe. And when, when you're talking about that kind of thing, it really does help with growth.
1: So what was it that triggered the desire to grow? Because you were at two to three million in your own admission for many years, um, but all of a sudden something switched and you decided to, to scale up. What, what was the triggering event that made you think that you wanted to go big and, and grow?
0: You know, it, it's, it's weird, because I, I think about that all the time, and, and sometimes I'm like, maybe growth isn't for everybody, because it's hard work, you know? Um, and I don't know, I think, you know, just the pressure of all my other friends who are business owners, Oh, everybody's got to grow, grow, grow. Right. So you're like, okay, well maybe I should be grow, grow, growing. So you then grow. And then you're like, Oh my God, I'm working like 70 hours a week. And you know, I've got to worry more. It's, I wasn't really working in the business so much, but it was like all these issues with people and all this. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was so hard. And then I think that was the kind of compelling reason for me to go back down and to simplify my life, and then got rid of all those management positions and just worked on profit.
1: How did your your profit margin, i.e., as a percentage of of your sales, change between when you were a ten million dollar company versus when you scale back down to say you know four when you sold?
0: So it, it's quite interesting because you know my margin, we we were we could lose money very quickly because we lost one project and the other project didn't start for three more months. And I was burning through like $250,000 a month. And, you know, I was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? And, and then, um, and what happened was you, you waste a lot more money. And then at the end of the year, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm only making maybe 700,000 so I'm 10 million and making 700,000. Well, then, you know, uh, fast forward, when I scaled back, got rid of the overhead, then um, my margins were more in the 25%. And it's, and I was only working an hour a day. So it's kind of interesting when you scale back and really get lean and, and really concentrate on what's, really important and not have all this fluff and well i got to grow so i need a new product or i got to grow i need to get in this new line you just say i'm getting rid of all those distractions and coming back to my core
1: and so you got down back down to four and even more profitable you know 20 25 profit margins on four million was more profitable than at 10 million so what made you want to sell the business was there some sort of triggering event
0: Well, uh, that's interesting because, um, you know, I I worked on really getting my profit um, two years before, because I don't care what anyone tells you when someone's looking at a consulting type of of, um, company, they're always looking for profit and they go back two to three years. So I can argue three years, don't go back, but two years and in the future. So um, I really worked on profit. And then I said, okay. I'm also going to make sure that my books are sparkling, sparkling, sparkling clean, meaning I was not going to put any of my personal um, stuff in QuickBooks, or if I did, that I categorized it correctly so that I could easily take it out and And just got real disciplined on that. So, you know, and, and then it's funny because I was at an entrepreneur event in Frankfurt, and I saw a friend of mine from my um, entrepreneur master program, and he and I were on a bus. And he said, hey, Sue, did you sell a couple of years ago? And I said, no, it fell through. You know, I, I, I just said, nah." And I said, I really need to get my deck together, and I'm going to do it by the end of June. So we shook on it, and I said, you're my accountability buddy, and I'm going to do that. So then what happened was a few days later, I get a LinkedIn hey, um, are you still interested in selling your company? And this was a guy that I had pitched a couple of years before that, and it came from out of the blue. So I'm a big believer in putting it out into the universe and something is going to come.
1: So you're in an EO event, and you literally had an accountability buddy that said. "So, But there must have been something at the EO meeting, because you chose not to sell back in the day. What, what made that deal fall through? And, and maybe talk a bit about what changed.
0: Yeah. So I, what really um, fell through for them was that they were trying to finance this whole thing rather than, you know, look at it from a cash perspective. And and then they had, you know, all this different lending and blah blah blah. And it just wouldn't work. You know, you have to put some cash down for a consulting business because it's a it's a people business. And it didn't go through because first of all, I had a investment banker that you know was incompetent and they didn't qualify them and they took nine 12 months to do all this stuff whereas the next time around i said to my business coach i'm just going to go find the people myself because the business um the investment banker that i had originally you know all the people that he brought to the table i brought to the table so it was kind of crazy Um, And I know other people didn't have that experience. But for me, that was a bad experience. But I did recognize the need for somebody to be a buffer between me and a seller. So therefore, that's why I engaged my business coach to be my quote unquote, investment banker. So when things got emotional, he's like, now let's not get emotional. And you know, he was my voice of reason. So that worked out very, very well. And and that's a best practice that I would say, always, always have that person in the middle somewhere.
1: For sure. The foil that can absorb some of the emotional, uh, you know, ups and downs of selling. So you made the decision, you got the call proactively from an individual you'd be in, in touch with, uh, take us through the, the next step in the process. So your response to the LinkedIn query was, yeah, you know, I'd be interested in a conversation. Where, where do you go from there?
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I'm in Frankfurt right now and I'm going to, uh, to Vienna next week. So why don't we have a call when I get back to the U S. So I had a call on that Monday and on Wednesday, the president came down to Atlanta. And, um, then what happened was we started into conversations. We talked about, you know, what, what the, um, what the term sheet would look like, because, you know, I said, listen, if we can't come a, a, on, on, in an agreement on a term sheet, we might as well just go home. And so basically we worked on the term sheet. I was able to get a lot of the due diligence stuff very quickly, believe it or not. They had a list of, you know, probably 30 things. I got that within one and a half days. Why? Because I had been prepared from this whole thing from two years ago. So I had everything, on like the anal person, everything was in a folder. All of my contracts for my existing customers, I put in a single, uh, you know, for the past four years I've been doing this, putting them in a single um, folder. I put all my agreements for my employees in a folder everything if if he they wanted to slice and dice any information it all came out of quickbooks i didn't have to like download from quickbooks and then manipulate stuff i have everything set up in quickbooks like uh to analyze and do whatever they wanted to so they were very impressed with the fact that i was able to get all of the due diligence stuff within a very very short amount of time so what happened was that took um from the signing of the um, the LOI to close it was less than sixty days, but that was also because it was a cash deal, and and you know that 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 definitely um, made it go a lot faster. But you know it was it was good for everyone in terms of just the the information and due diligence.
1: And when you say LOI, of course, you're referring to a letter of intent, the yes. usually non-binding. So. Before we get to the, the 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 actual close, let's talk about the LOI. So, uh, you got an LOI from this firm after you met with the president. What was your reaction when you first saw the LOI? Just emotional, kind of. Did you reading through it? What, what did you think?
0: Well, it, before they created it, we had the conversation because, again, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to go through the whole crap that I had done, you know, three years before. You know, everyone argues about what's the what's the um, uh, the the value of the business we had these discussions up front um, I knew in my industry you know what what the EBITDA should be I knew when you say revenue, the EBITDA you,
1: you're referring to what the EBITDA like multiple of EBITDA should yes. be like wh- yep. what did you yep. think what did you think uh, the multiple of EBITDA should have been like what did you argue? well
0: um, well I said for a project base because I'm not I was not a staffing company I was a project base. So when we talk about project-based um, consulting, it's a little bit higher of um, p- gross profit. And so, you know, our industry standards is somewhere between six and eight times the multiple.
1: Six to eight times EBITDA. Is, and so yeah. that's what you were sort of arguing for, if you will. And, yeah. And- or
0: one times revenue, which for me, it was the same kind of thing.
1: Got it. And so... What was their reaction when you threw out those numbers in the conversation?
0: You know, obviously they're, oh, well, you know, we were thinking four. And I said, well, if it's going to be four, let's not even waste my time. Well, let's not get crazy, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, you know, I think before people put it on, on paper, it's good to have the conversation so that we all have a conversation and we have expectations. That saves a lot of time back and forth, because as soon as somebody puts it on paper, they have to email it, somebody has to look at it, blah, 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 rather than have, you just have a conversation with them. It, it, it makes things go a lot quicker than the expectation is there. And you say, I mean, I took the hard, hard thing. I didn't have to sell the company. I have, was making a lot of money per month. I was working an hour a day, you know? So for me, I don't have to sell. It, it could keep going on. So I was in a very different position. And, and, you know, I took the hard stance. Like, listen, if you're talking anything less than this, then I'm not really interested. So if you could come a little bit closer, then, okay, then we can have a conversation. So you guys decide, but please don't insult me and don't waste my time.
1: In that conversation, who was the first to lay out a number? I mean, did you, did you throw out the six to eight and they reacted with four or did they start with four and you reacted with six to eight? Who who was the first no, to put a number no, in? No,
0: I, I told them it was somewhere between six and eight. And really the number probably should be five to seven, but of course I did six to eight. And then we we came in um at six, you know. So it was it's really five to eight and 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 you know, I I just threw that out. They knew probably I was gonna come a little bit lower. And they their expectation was four. So I said, well, four is not in the conversation. So.
1: so you guys settled on six. What was the when you looked at the letter of intent? Obviously the conversation is about valuation, but clearly the letter of intent has quite a bit more detail to it. And specifically I'm mm-hmm. thinking about kind of things like earnout. I mean, what was your reaction when you saw what their expectations were around the earnout?
0: Um, well, the other thing is um from an earnout perspective you know, I, I, I've been through a lot of sales with friends of mine and I know the word earnout means you're never going to get it. <laughs> so, um, and I'm not saying, it, you know, maybe in different people, but my experience with a lot of my friends is they said, be happy with the number that you have, because you don't know what's going to happen to that earnout, And people can, um, screw around with those numbers and all this other kind of stuff. So what I did was I made sure that my, my, um, business coach and I set the number and he said, with anything less than this, are you going to be happy? And, you know, can we use anything more to be a quote unquote earnout? So what they did was, um, to get us up to the eight number, they gave the earnout number to be that eight number. So it was kind of like, Made it a little goodwill kind of thing. So, you know, in my mind, I was happy with the number that I got. And then the extra was the earnout number. So, again, it, it was very in line with the conversations that we had. Um, and again, it, it helped because I had my business coach speak to them before they actually gave an LOI.
1: How did you stick handle around the fact that you actually shrunk in size? I mean, did did you go out of your way to avoid telling them that, or were you no, were you overt no. and said, you know, we used to be yep. ten, now we're four? Because a lot of people would 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 not touch a company that had shrunk in size without yep. some backstory. So how did you stick handle yep. that?
0: Well, I I just said, listen, the access to capital, um, everybody knows that access to capital in the U.S. is awful, right? I mean, let's hope that our current president does something with the banking industry to to let us get access to capital um so for me to keep growing it it wasn't you know i i couldn't i couldn't do anymore and so i basically told them you know what i decided to do is when we finished one of our huge huge projects i decided not to go after any more huge huge projects that put a um that put me in the in the Put me so that I was I not, I didn't have that much access to capital and and put me in a position that it was just too stressful and so you know we had been maintaining that um, you know four four and a half million for a few years so I think it was fine.
1: Got it. So you sort of talked it. You were you didn't hide it, but but certainly no. kind of talked around it. Got it. And so the, the structure of the deal was. Uh, you had you had a as i understand it around 6 times ebitda with 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 8 times possible if you if you hit the earnout number
0: correct that's so,
1: correct so how long was the earnout
0: um the earnout is uh, 2 years and
1: you're still in that process now yes sir Got yep it. um
0: actually it'll end in 2019 so there's an earnout for a year 2018 and then there's a the earnout for 2019.
1: I see. So they've staggered it. So you could hit 18 and and, and not 19. Could you also hit 19 but not 18? Yes. Got yep. it. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. That's that's super helpful. And so what's life been like during the earnout?
0: Uh well, you know, what's funny is that I'm not tied to the company. I did not get um, I did not go with the company, which is unusual in a Consulting company, but I also had built up my company so that my number two, he really was doing everything in the company. That's why I was working an hour a day. And so they basically took him, and when they took him, that's he's got all the intellectual property in his head and knows all about all the clients and manages all that kind of stuff. I was really doing a lot of back office stuff.
1: So, how did you structure his? employment agreement? I mean, did he participate in any way in the company? Was he a shareholder? Or how did you you retain your number two guy, uh, given just how deeply uh, dependent, I guess, you personally were on him?
0: Well, we had an agreement that he got um, a percentage of the profit um, all along. So every month we'd get a profit, he'd get a percentage. We also had an agreement that said if we sold, his percentage would double. So basically, I called him on Thursday and said, hey, um, just want to let you know that I'm selling the company. He knew that eventually we were going to sell. And I said, oh, by the way, um, you're going to get a check on Tuesday. So it came out of the blue. The reason I didn't say anything was, you know, you never know what's going to happen if it's going to fall through. I was very um, cautious because of what had happened the previous years. And so basically I said, you know, I didn't want him spending the money and getting emotional in his head and all this other stuff. And I said, you know, I want to wait until the last possible moment. And I basically did. So as soon as the everything was signed and they were initiating um, the wire, that's when I actually said, hey, yeah, I just want to let you know. Here, you're getting your percentage, and here are your three payout dates.
1: So the percentage, to be clear, was after the acquisition. He wasn't getting a percentage of profits going forward. He he, the percentage you were giving him of profits, he then got double that in terms of the, the overall value you received.
0: That's correct.
1: Yes. Got it. That's that's an interesting. So, so it's sort of a very simplistic, if you will, phantom phantom options, but phantom share program like in a very sort of straightforward uh yeah because
0: I was I was an LLC and I owned a hundred percent and you know for me to give him you know an X percent I I was a certified woman owned business it's just such a pain Mm. and it's just it's just easier. We had, you know, basically a napkin agreement that said, well every month you get you get a percentage and so that's what I did and I lived up to that. And then when we um when we um when we got when I got to the you know to the actual sale, um then basically, you know he he doubled his percentage
1: and how did you retain him? Because a lot of people you run a big check they're at the door. So how did you retain him for the earnout?
0: Well, um he what I did was I made sure that he got um he gets an earnout, and I gave him extra percentage uh. points. For the extra earnout for 2018
1: and 19. Got it. Got it.
0: As you refi- so I said. So Go I on. said, if I got that money, I didn't give him his percentage. I even doubled that percentage.
1: Wow. So he's very, very incentivized to help you hit this, this earnout.
0: That's correct.
1: That's correct. If you had a young entrepreneur in front of you, just starting out, and and they want to bring on a two IC, a second in command, um, and 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 really free them up personally from the day-to-day to to the point where, you know, the vision would be to get, you know, to an hour a day and and work. How would you structure or advise them to structure a relationship with a second-in-command? I mean, you obviously honored your agreements, but was there any part of the the structure that you had established that that maybe you wouldn't do if you were to do it over again or that you'd advise somebody not to do? Like, how would you advise a, a young entrepreneur to incentivize them?
0: So, I think the the real thing that I would say is that treat the person fairly, right um i I always coached him. i He was working for me for twelve years, and he was just an employed employee for many years. But I also put him on the path of leadership, right? so i I realized uh, five years ago, and I'm talking to you know he's thirty two years old. so he's relatively young. And what a nice thing for him to be basically in charge of a company, really. And so throughout the whole time, I made sure that I was coaching him and, you know, making sure that he made the decision. So he was making decisions for hiring. You know, if he wanted to do something, I would say, well, what do you think you should do? Um, and, and let him make the decisions and, and really empower him. And by doing that, then it came to the, you know, the, I've only was paying him as a percentage owner just recently. And I did that, um, because of the fact that, um, you know, I said, Hey, I, I like my life right now and I don't want to lose him and I want to make sure that he's happy and maintained. And so I basically did that.
1: Interesting. And so was there any part of you that worried that, you you know, you were in a professional services environment, uh, you you don't admittedly have a lot of assets per se, that he Mm -hmm. looks at you kind of strolling in for an hour a day and (laughs) and leaving after an hour, he's working 60 hours a week. Like, was there any, any part of the worried that he was going to just kind of go off and compete with you?
0: Um, you know what? No. Um, it's very interesting. I, we all work remotely, so we don't even, we're all over the United States and Hmm. We actually have some people in the world, so we have some uh, folks in the Middle East. But um, so no one really saw that I was only working an hour a day. You know, I was always available. Uh, If you needed something, you text me. Um, So we always had an open open policy. So no one really was tracking. Oh, I wasn't in the office because. I barely I don't think I I can't even tell you when the last time I was in the office, maybe nine months ago. And I just sold the company two months ago. So I really I really didn't um, go into the office. So there wasn't that like I didn't I wasn't held accountable to people's. Oh, where is she? That kind of thing. And and because of the fact that I was always available and they knew that I think they you know, I did work all the time if I had to. I was available all of of the time. So the perception was that I was working all of the time.
1: A lot of people would question it. They're going to be here. They're going to be driving in their car, listening to this episode and go, oh, my gosh, why did this woman sell this business? She was making whatever, a million bucks a year. Uh, She was working an hour a day. Uh, She could have ridden this out for another 25 years. How how would you react to someone like who who's thinking that way? What why why sell if it's just an hour a day that you're working?
0: Um, the, the it was time for me. Um, why I'm because I I'm ready to do something different. I think I've done something for you know 24 years and I'm just done. I'm done with the same old thing. You know I'm very good at it, but it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't exciting. So now of course, like every entrepreneur, I've already started another company and it's in a totally unrelated field. I'm doing in the entertainment and professional athlete, I'm doing wealth protection. So for me, it was just a time I was ready. I was ready to, I don't know, I wasn't ready to weather another, um, another time to, to actually, um, you know, get another client and and ramp up again. I don't know. Just the mundane of doing the same old thing all the time. So I was just ready.
1: And did you buy yourself any sort of trophy uh, after the deal closed? Was there any sort of yeah? Call money? What did what did you buy?
0: So I'm a I'm a girl, and you know I like to have my diamonds. So I bought myself a nine carat diamond ring. <laughs>
1: I love it. <laughs> what does a nine carat diamond ring cost?
0: A lot. (laughs) So it's, but it's a fun kind of thing. And I'm also getting, um, I had on my vision board from three years ago, um, my McLaren. So my McLaren will be here, uh, very soon.
1: Nice. So you got a couple of trophies to, uh, to show for your exit. That's awesome. Yes. Yes. Um, What's the best way for people to reach you, Sue? Is there a, a LinkedIn profile people can go to or a website? What, how can people reach out if they wanted to say hi?
0: Sure. Um, I'm available on LinkedIn. So you just look up uh, Sue Hrib, H R I B. I'm the only one in the whole entire world. Um, it's a claim up, to fame. Yep. And also, I have a new business called Aunties. So it's www.auntiz.com. And you also can look me up on social media on Instagram. I'm Sue Hrib And everyone calls me Aunt Sue Hrib.
1: There you go. Harib is spelt H-R-I-B. Sue, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.